My name is Genevieve Harris, and today I will be talking about Zarefsky's article on argument culture and Lloyd Bitzer's article on the rhetorical situation. So, here we go. Zarefsky's article is written about what an argument culture looks like and how you define an argument culture. So a culture could refer to something as large as North America and, you know, Canada, Canadian culture, or it could refer to school culture or club culture. It can go really small. So these smaller scale cultures, it's an ambiguous word. You kind of have to figure out what you're defining culture as. Okay, Zarefsky says that An argument culture assumes the presence of an audience and emphasizes its importance. Argument forms can be elegant models, whether they relate to anyone or not, but a culture implies connections. These arguments are addressed to people. This ties back into Lloyd Bitzer's article on rhetorical situation because he explains how a rhetorical audience is entirely separate from listeners and passive people that are not engaging whether that's in dialogue or allowing their opinions to be swayed. So, Zarefsky also explains how an argument culture values conviction and it shows the people's willingness to take risks. So, whether or not you would say that, you know, arguing on Facebook is an argument culture, like showing North America's argument culture, I personally would not because I think that these people arguing on Facebook are engaging in fights and not formal arguments. In order for it to be a formal argument, you need to be willing to have your opinions changed and to be open to other people's viewpoints. So personally, I would argue that North America is not a formal argument culture, but I think that we are just mean to each other. So, Zarevsky also talks about whether or not there are any argument cultures. He says that the answer is yes and no. Okay, Zarevsky argues, Zarevsky mentions whether or not there are any argument cultures. He says that there are and there are not, smaller scale and larger scale, but he also mentions the example of US politics. I think if anything was to be an argument culture, I think it would be U.S. politics. I think that there is such a focus on challenging each other's ideas and challenging your own ideas and thoughts that I think U.S. politics would be probably the best definition or example, I mean, that I could think of for finding a formal argument culture. Now, Lloyd Bitzer's article is called The Rhetorical Situation, And he explains how rhetorical situation is separate from rhetorical theory. He also explains how nothing makes sense without context. His quote is, Verbal responses to the demands imposed are just as necessary as physical responses. And he goes on to explain how the words that are taken out of context are even more important than the actions being said or done. So... When you think of these arguments and these speeches, these persuasive arguments and people on TV and the news, these are all responses to the demands imposed. And, okay, so 
The verbal responses to the demands imposed are just as necessary as physical responses. Bitzer also goes on to talk about how there's one controlling exigence in every situation. And he also explains how rhetoric is purely situational. So when we are talking about whether or not North America is or is not an argument culture, we have to understand that every single uh, public speaker and speech is under the constraints of the situations around them. So Bitzer's whole article is basically on rhetorical discourse and how the situation affects all of it. So I personally think that this ties in super well with Zarevsky's argument culture. But that's all I have to say. I'm running out of time. Hope I did okay. My name is Genevieve Harris, and today I will be talking about Zarevsky's article from 2004. It's called Presidential Rhetoric and the Power of Definition, and I will also be talking about Schiappa's article on real definitions of words. So, here we go. This ties in a lot to what we talked about last week, just the power of rhetoric in public speaking and how we define these uh, like buzzwords, these certain definitions that are really important. So Zarefsky starts off with how presidential rhetoric is studied from social sciences and humanities. And he says that from a human humanistic perspective, scholars are concerned with the uniqueness of exemplary cases as well as with recurrent patterns, blah, 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 blah. I study presidential rhetoric in the beliefs that it increasingly is what the presidency is about and that it makes a difference. So... I agree with what he's saying that presidential rhetoric is what makes the presidents different. And I'm sure you could argue that most of our presidents in the past years are really good public speakers at what they do. I mean, Zarevsky gave off article or examples for how these winning candidates interpret their elections, their winning elections, as a mandate for certain actions. So... His example was Ronald Reagan viewed his election as a mandate for substantial tax cuts. And an example I thought of was how Donald Trump interpreted his election as a mandate for the Mexican, the wall between like here and Mexico. And I think that this is a really powerful tool of rhetoric when you have people coming together for a certain cause, like for tax cuts or for the wall. And we're focusing less on the actual president's and more on the certain actions that they are saying that they will do. So, Zarevsky says that presidential rhetoric defines political reality, and I agree with this. I, thinking, I think that um, the presidents are getting better and better at focusing the attention away from them and more on what they say they will do, whether or not they actually do it. But he goes on to say that presidential rhetoric calls for interpretation. Presidents know that they are speaking to multiple parties during inauguration speeches, during every public event. It's going to be scrutinized on CNN, Fox News, every huge media audience. So the speaker does make a choice with their audience in mind about the best way to achieve his goals, whether or not this is to appeal to the masses, to appeal to a certain party, if it's a call to action, Presidential rhetoric has more of a focus on this, I feel, than regular rhetoric or public speaking 
or podcasts or other really um, mass-consumed media. So this ties into our last week's articles because if we talk about Shaipa, I don't know how to say it, but Shaipa's article, he is arguing about the real definitions of words. So we could argue about the definitions of anything we say and whether or not rhetoric is a field of study in its own right and what we really mean by argument or debates or any of these things are honestly ambiguous. You can change anything. But Shaipa goes on to say how definitions are a form of social control and it tells you the proper way to speak in public. So when everyone decides on the same definition of a word, we have, well, what he says is a form of social control. I don't know if I personally believe this. I think definitions are necessary or else we're going to have a lot of confusion. I know that many definitions could be argued and can be argued, but I do not think that we should question everything because it brings in a lot of really... mm, difficult territory in my opinion I don't want to say a word and have people not understand what I'm saying or whether it be a gray area I don't know but this ties in a lot with our articles from last week about how we would define argument culture and whether or not America is an argument culture and I think that Zarefsky's article from 2009 is really similar to the 2004 article because it ties into argument culture and the political climate in America and how presidential rhetoric affects the argument culture. So this is all I have to say about these, and I will talk to you next week. Bye. My name is Genevieve Harris, and today I will be talking about Brock Reed's article, Arguers as Lovers, and Fisher's article, Narration as a Human Communication Paradigm, The Case of Public Moral Argument. To start off, I'm going to start by talking about... (coughs) Okay, I'm really sick, and I can't talk without coughing, so I'm going to try and keep this one short. Sorry for having to listen to me. Brockery's article, Arguers as Lovers, I think is terrible. I did not like it at all. I think he made valid points in parts of this, but I do not like his use of the word rape and rapist when talking about verbal arguments and the forms of argumentation. I don't think that is a proper word to be used, and I think he could have done a lot better with his word choices. I don't think it creates the best visual, per se, when you read this like he says one of the forms argumentative rape may take is for an arguer to structure the situation so he has more power than others when a poor person's advocate has too little human and material resources to meet the power of the state or the power of a corporation lawyer the have not have been raped by the have now do we really need to use the word rape instead of almost any other word that would fit into this whole article probably don't need to be using that um he goes on to talk about the philosophical arguer and other arguers in the lover paradigm um they want their existential truths established in an open environment 
etc., etc. I just can't get over his word choices, and it honestly makes me not take this article completely seriously. And to talk about Fisher's article, Narration as a Human Communication Paradigm, The Case of a Public Moral Argument. In the summary at the top, it says this essay proposes a theory of human communication based on a conception of persons. It compares and contrasts this view with the traditional rational perspective on symbolic interaction. Um, now, his whole article is honestly really wordy. And I know that this was written in 1984. So, obviously, educational articles are going to be written differently than they would be now. But I found this article a little bit hard to read. Um, it was a type of article that I would have to go back and, like, take notes on to understand. <coughs> Sorry. But reading it... Um, I thought most of my focus for this podcast would be more on Brock Reed's article just because I found more more was available to talk about easily. And to be honest, I was not really understanding Fisher's article and I've read it twice. However, I think I might need to go in and just start rewriting it in my own words because I really do wish I understood what he was saying, but I don't. <coughs> but I also do know that this is for moral arguments, and that's why it's leaning towards heavily philosophical writing, which is not something that I'm very familiar with. But I did think it was interesting because it made me think, and usually while reading... You know, you don't really have to think about the meaning of words as much. And I think that ties into last week's articles was whether or not, like, you know, the meaning of words. I don't know. I just think that it's a good article for making you think about it. But I also do need to go in and re reread it because my Lexile is not on that level. That's all. <coughs> Thank you. Bye.